You're listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Glose. Maria Ponzi on the podcast today. Yes, that Ponzi of Ponzi Vineyards. Oregon wine leader, speaker, consultant, author of Pinot Girl, creator of the Four Ounce Pour, she explains what that is, and former owner and past president of Ponzi Vineyards. You know when you meet somebody and it feels like you've known them maybe a lifetime. I met Maria at a women in wine conference earlier this summer in the Willamette Valley, and it was very much like that. We started kind of firing on all cylinders as soon as we met. So today's conversation, again, don't really want to call it an interview, was really like new friends catching up like old friends. So as you can imagine, a lot of stories in this interview today. She talks about her parents moving up to the Willamette Valley to grow grapes and make wine. They knew nothing about wine, by the way. Uh, Maria talks about after college, moving as far away from Oregon as she could. But then there was a decision to come back to help out with the family winery. It was not an easy decision, but she dove in headfirst and made a lot of incredible changes to this winery. Again, a lot of stories in today's interview. There's a lot of history wrapped up in this woman. I took a lot away from today's interview, but there are three things at the top of my list. Transition finding your story, and impact. Here's Maria Ponzi. Ooh, I like that. Going into that cold, yay. No idea what's going to happen in the next (laughs) 60 minutes. I love it. I know, I know, I know. All right, well, um, I'm so happy you're here. Maria Ponzi, Oregon wine leader, creator of Four Ounce Pour, speaker, author, consultant. I mean, everybody, not everybody, a lot of people know the name Ponzi, right? Yeah. But well, yeah. Okay. There's Ponzi scheme too. So it depends on which Ponzi. (laughs) So let's be clear on that. So this is the good, this is the good Ponzi, the good Ponzi. No, seriously, in all seriousness, looking you up, doing some research, um, a little blown away, honestly, like, uh, you and I met at women in wine conference back in July. Um, and I just felt like it was one of those, um, a meeting that like, I just haven't seen you in a while. Like I've just known you for a long time, but I just haven't seen you in a while. Do you get that a lot? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I feel, and I also feel like, um, as you mentioned, like people know of me, but not many people know me. You know what I mean? You're sort of been around for a long time and there's a lot of perceptions and assumptions, but really, you know, for so long I was head down, you know, running the business and not really able to to have real connections with people. So like the conference, the Women in Wine conference was so wonderful for that and just being able to get out, you know, and uh, and yeah, and kind of create new relationships in a different way. It's been really fun. Well, thank you for being on the podcast today. Again, we met, it was just so like click, 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 click. And then I just said, uh, you need to be on my podcast. Hello. And here you are. So I'm so glad we made this happen. I'm psyched to be here too. Thanks for having me. Okay. I just want to say again, Oregon wine leader, creator of the four ounce pour, which we'll get into speaker, author, consultant, author of Pinot Girl that came out in 2020, spring of 2020. Um, Mm -hmm. But so much. You're also former owner and past president of Ponzi Vineyards. I wrote down a list of things. Uh, you've served as commissioner on Oregon Tourism Commission, VP of Oregon Wine Growers, Wine Growers Association. We'll get into all of that. But really, you've held so many positions and jobs in the last couple decades. 
Yeah, kind of been all over. Um, but I, but I, but I think that that's who I am. Mm -hmm. Like this last year has been really, really wonderful for me. Um, we sold the winery in 2021. Um, and um, yeah, like you said, for so many years, just really like going at it a hundred and you know, 110%. And I think like it's it, and now it's like things have slowed down, but then I've realized that no, that's who I am. Like, I love to be busy, not just busy, but I love to get involved and be involved. And I, I still feel like there's so much more to do, even though I've kind of, you know, in a way I've stepped away from the wine industry. Of course, I have less investment in it. Now we have a vineyard, my, my husband and I have a vineyard, but really we have less less invested yet I still feel like I I want to help like sure. I still want to contribute like I still want this to be an incredible industry for the future and so yeah so I'm still finding myself like pulling back in you know women and wine you know I'm on the board of that I'm still involved with salute I can't seem to let salute go it's it's near and dear to my heart you know um and of course OWA which I think is just an incredible mm -hmm. such an essential organization so yeah um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I've always been involved. I think that it's sort of in my blood, you know, I always kind of wonder why, <laughs> you know, you, as a person, you're like, well, why am I like this? And, um, I really think a lot of it, it comes from modeling my mother. My mom has really always been my, my greatest mentor. Um, and she has always like been able to do so many things. And I think I've sort of been following her lead without really knowing. Well, that's a perfect segue because I want to get to your parents. Where are you from originally? Well, I was born in Los Gatos, California. So, uh, in fact, my brother and sister and I were all from California. We were born there. But we moved up here um, to the Willamette Valley back in 1968, actually, and established the property in 1969. So I feel like I'm an Oregon girl for sure. I think so. Yeah, I think it's safe to say you're definitely an Oregon girl. Why, are your, why did your parents move up to the Willamette? Well, I mean, the whole deal was Pinot Noir, you know, it really, it sounds a little silly in a way now, but, um, but my dad was a mechanical engineer. He was working for Disney. Uh, my mom had these three little, you know, tiny little babies, little people. And I, it was this, you know, the late sixties, the sixties, a lot of turmoil, a lot of, you know, kind of sure. what to do. Um, and they wanted to kind of be um, living off the land. They wanted a life of greater purpose. And I think they really, um, you know, they loved the European culture. My father's an Italian, he's first generation Italian. Uh, so that whole idea about food and wine was just definitely in him. And, um, and then it was more than that. It was like, they loved this grape, this Pinot Noir, that was the wine that really brought them up here and us in tow, right? I mean, I tell the story in the book about us being in the station wagon and, you know, where the hell were we going up north with this cold and rainy and gray and, you know, like leaving this pristine, beautiful California area. But, um, but it was really Pinot Noir that brought them up. And I think that's pretty interesting, especially in a time when, you know, Pinot Noir, Pinot Noir uh, was virtually unknown and certainly the Valley was unknown. So they were definitely pioneers. And um, I will get in trouble if I don't ask, because my husband is a ginormous Disney okay. freak <laughs> fan, maybe. there It's it's right on the edge. Um, what did your dad do for Disney? Well, he was a mechanical engineer. So let's see. I think he worked on the... Um, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Sorry. I'm not Stop. Yeah, he's in charge. 
well, he was, I mean, it's been a few years, but like he um, managed the brakes on those things. So if the brakes were failing, that was on him. I think he did something with a small world. I mean, you know, this is way back in the sixties. So it's like, right. Disneyland was the thing. And like all those were the new rides. (laughs) That's so cool. That's really, really cool. Um, I'll pass that news along. He is not only is he a Disney fan, he's also Pirates of the Caribbean. That's also his like favorite ride. So cool. <laughs> he'll, he'll be, he'll be swooning <laughs> later today. Um, awesome. so they move up to Willamette Valley, you know, for Pinot Noir, but I read that your parents were not farmers. They mm. were not winemakers, not really businessy people. Right. So it's just like, let's go. Let's obvious yeah. next choice is let's have a vineyard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the irony behind the whole, the whole story. And I <laughs> I think it's just really, you know, unique to to Dick and Nancy. It was really um, something that most of the pioneers had in common is that they really just it was all about this dream and lack of real substance in terms of um, experience in winemaking. Certainly no business savvy. I mean, I think the whole business thing was like, oh, yeah, we got to figure out how to run this, you know, operate this and be profitable. And that I think those things came much later, but it was more like these novel ideas of you know, living off the land and and trying to be a farmer. And I know for my folks anyway, it was reading books. And um, they felt that, you know, if they if they were educated and asked a bunch of silly questions, they could make anything happen. And so they did. But even that my my folks also were never gardeners. You know, you can even think about it in that way. You know, the scale of what they did, um, they weren't even like, you know, they had no they had no business doing what they did. But but it, I think it's kind of the beauty of being young and naive and um, wanting to be a little bit of counterculture, which is who they were. I mean, I don't want to call them hippies because they were they weren't just on the sidelines. They were actually very much trying to make something um, really amazing happen here. Mm-hmm. Pretty remarkable. But it also happened. I always like to 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 reinstate that the collaboration was so critical. Yeah. You know the that there were other families that shared the same um, kind of aim and objective and and the values they all shared, uh, you know, in terms of organic farming and like this whole high quality standard, which was just, you know, kind of paramount. It kind of, it was the the thing that everybody wanted to achieve great wines. And I think that that's to me so remarkable too, that they all have that, they shared those commonalities. That like like who, what, what kind of, what families are we well, talking about? But we're talking about the original. So we're talking about um, Dickie Rath. We're talking about David Lett. We're talking about the Blossers. We're talking about the Campbells, um, the Volsteks, who many people don't know who are over here. A lot of folks in Washington County that not people, many, many people know about, um, you know, the Castiles. But I mean, the first probably 10 years or so, the first decade as as we were all getting this started, it was all sort of, you know, if, if you had success, that meant it was success for everybody. And I just sort of love that. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that too. I love that you said hippies because I feel like this story, I've heard it so many times, even in Southern Oregon, you have these, you know, in the sixties, late sixties, this sort of just like free spirited, but hardworking mentality. Um, yeah. And it was just this, this land looks good. What do we need to do something with it? Let's grow some grapes. And then boom, you just have these incredible winemaking families come out all across Oregon, actually. 
Yeah, right. And I mean, it's the, 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 they saw opportunity mm-hmm. and like you said they were hardworking. So even if they didn't have the experience, right, the, the schooling or, or even the work experience, they had the determination, right. And they had that stubbornness to make it happen. And I actually believe, and I, you know, I kind of lived through some of this, well, most of it, but like this whole thing about what are you guys doing? You're crazy. Forget about it. You know, yeah. Go back home, you know, go back to California or whatever, you know. And I think that even fueled them, right? That it was like even like we're harnessing that we're gonna we're gonna definitely make this happen now. Um, but there were so many amazing people in those early days, you know, folks that I speak about in my book. Um, you know, Stephen Carey, who was one of the first guys. I, I look at him as um like our soldier, like he was our foot soldier going out and actually selling the wines. You know, if you can imagine, like here's this guy and you know, going to New York City and with his little pack of Oregon Pinot Noirs that were just kind of, you know, you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, I mean. These are the early days, early vintages. These are not probably the best wines ever in the world. Um, but there he was, and he was like, you know, insisting that people, um, you know, take on the, you know, distributors take on these wines and French restaurants take on these wines. And I mean, like all those negative, like, go home. What are you doing? I'm we sure. don't need you. And it's also yeah. probably like, Oregon, where's that? Where, where is it? Yeah. Well, shoot. I always say that. I spent even even in my days of selling wine and promoting wines and and I say wines because because that's what it was. I wasn't really selling Ponzi in the for so many years, literally probably for 20 years. I was really selling Oregon, selling the Willamette Valley, and then I was selling Pinot Noir. And if I could get around to it, I might be able to pitch my wine you know, in the final, final, like 30 seconds. Oh, and by the way, this if you want to buy one. Um, So, you know, you really I even feel that. I was a little bit of a, you know, not, not a foot soldier at that point, but definitely, you know, bra- groundbreaking in terms of introducing people to Pinot Noir from this area, because nobody was really out there doing that. For sure. And I feel like as the Oregon wine industry grows, we're just creating more foot soldiers because we're all so passionate and in love with what we produce in the state. And it's so diverse and it's so interesting and, and good. So I love that. Um, you said foot soldier, because I always think that, that we're just out there on the front lines, like pushing our state so hard. Um, I want to talk about your mom really quickly, because I know food was important growing up, right? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And she was a good cook. Yeah. She still is. She still is a good cook. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it started, um, you know, we lived on this little farm. So we made I mean, we we were living off the land. I mean, we had the garden, we had the animals. Um, and my mother, um, you know, she just would we didn't have a lot of money. So everything was very simple. These were, you know, simple meals and so forth. But mom was very involved in the um, cons- the first Consumer Food Council. And this was an organization. <laughs> yeah, this was an organization that for the first time said, hey, people, you should know what's in your food ingredient labeling. And my mother was on the forefront of that. And so she was very, very uh, involved in making sure people were eating healthy foods and knew where the foods were coming from and getting away from foods with chemicals. And again, if you think about that time zone of the 60s into the 70s, that was really a departing from the 50s and a lot of processed foods. And, um, you know, again, mom was really at the forefront of that. Um, but we, um, yeah, we always ate really well, but, you know, it was just very simple. You know, it was mm-hmm. the standard Italian stuff, you know, homemade tomato, you know, 
garden um, vegetables and pastas and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Occasionally there was a really bad like tuna fish casserole that I didn't prefer. Um, yeah, I read um, she co-founded the Consumers Food mm-hmm. Council um, yeah. that later was, you know, essentially in charge of lobbying mm-hmm. to change all of these, you know, policies and, and rules. Um, she taught cooking on TV. Yeah. I got this image of Julia Child. I'm not sure. Like, I just got this <laughs> image of this this sweet, incredible woman teaching basic cooking on TV. Yeah, mom did that. She also um, had a regular cooking class. Um, this is so cute at the Kitchen Caboodle store, which oh. I guess is all around. And my mom was one of the first to um, create recipes with a Cuisinart because the Cuisinart was new. And so mom would, you know, create these. Uh, she would do. Um, I remember we ate um, quiche for weeks at a time because my mom was trying to perfect her quiche, you know, that dress for the quiche. Like, oh my God, another quiche. Like, Jesus, enough of the eggs. (laughs) Oh man, that's great. Is there any dish that you, you think about now that you're just like, you'd give anything to just go back in time and have that one dish? Well, I mean, everything she, she has ever made, um, is incredible. Um, but I have to say, I think it's the pasta, you know, it's like my mom, okay, my mother will do like a lasagna, where she literally will make the pasta, right? So she'll make the pasta yeah. fresh. pasta. She makes the marinara, she'll she'll make the ricotta, every part of the lasagna is made, and then she'll assemble it. And I'm like, Mom, Jesus, you know, you could buy at least two of those items. And, you know, no, no. no. When you have her lasagna, it is like like the most amazing lasagna you'll ever have because it's just light and fluffy and delicious and you can eat a lot of it. And that's what I call a project. That's a food project. Yeah. <laughs> that's a Sunday. That's yeah, that's, that's a, a Sunday. all day Sunday. Oh I Sunday. just reading about her, I mean, I didn't write mm-hmm. I didn't write a whole bunch of things down. I just was mesmerized by all yeah. of the things that she's accomplished and just she just yeah. I mean, original boss, right? No, she's, she's, she's an incredible person. Um, she's remarkable. And, um, beyond all her talents, she's also like this, um, God, she's just like a really a strong woman, but, um, but so devoted to her husband. I mean, unlike today, it's like, she really adores her husband and somehow she's managed that too. You know, like she's balanced out how to be a strong, powerful, incredibly skilled, talented woman, generous mom, has all these, you know, grandkids and stuff, but she's still like this great wife. It's like, what's up with that? Like, how can you manage all that stuff? All the things. I know. <laughs> yeah. It is incredible. It is incredible. It's, so person. Um, you go off to University of Oregon to study journalism. Which yeah. Is so cool. I wanted to be you, Trish. <laughs> I wanted to be you. That was my dream, man. <laughs> That's so funny to me. Before you go off to college, though, your parents are making one. They're making wine, right? Like this is happening. Is Absolutely. it is it gaining popularity at all, or is it still just sort of this? Where no. was Oregon wine on the map? I guess. Yeah, right. So there we go. Um, so this is like in the eighties, right. um, kind of mid eighties, that I go to Boston to work. I graduate from college. I go to Boston. I'm going to be this great. You know, I'm going to I'm going to be on TV like Trish. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to do it, man. Um, anyway, that didn't happen. Um, but I ended up, I ended up in Boston and this is, yeah, um, this is like the late eighties. Um, and I think it was in, um, 1980, no, 1990 that my, my mom 
um, you know, we were talking back and forth. She's like, you know, things are really changing. Domain Duran has moved in. That was 1987, mm -hmm. which caused a big boom, right, for Oregon because it was like French and 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 investment, like a beautiful facility. It was like the first real winery in the valley it got a lot of attention. Um, that was like 1987. Um, and she would be, you know, we'd be chatting. She's like, so-and-so got this award or so-and-so is getting this, you know, great um, uh, recommendation at whatever, New York Times or whatever it might be. And I was like, I was in my own world and the wine industry was really nothing still for right. me. It was just still like that memory of hard work and, you know, working in the garage and whatever, like, why are we doing all this, you know? Um, but when I would, but when I came home at one summer or something, it was, I remember driving to Montanor and this is out in Forest Grove. And I, I drove to Montanor. I'm like, wow, fancy place. And then I drove to, and I saw DDO and I'm like, whoa, maybe stuff is happening here. And I think that's for the first time hmm. that I thought maybe, maybe this is going to go somewhere. And so I returned in 1991. Um, <clears throat> and I, I realized that there was a place for me because that was very important being a pretty independent person myself. I, I was definitely very clear that I wasn't going to come back and just like be hanging with the folks, you know, I was like, I can't do that. But if if you can plug me in, right, and pay me for real, because I'm a hot shot from the East Coast right now. Hell but yeah. um, you know what I mean? <laughs> but but I immediately took over um, you know, the marketing part and you know, or did the taste room stuff and everything was very small at that time because we were about, I don't know, ten thousand cases. So I was kind of, you know, spreading myself to sales and marketing and the and the hospitality piece. And 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 then I just, you know, and then I just got into it and I realized. Yeah, this is happening. And and then and then really um I wouldn't say it was it was ever really easy. I don't think it's ever been really easy um to when I say easy, um selling wine is difficult. You know what I'm saying? Selling anything is difficult, but um selling something that was so unusual even when I came back in those in those days in the 90s and all the way through the 2000s and you know it was like I said before it was a, it was you know there was a lot of education that had to happen well sure why Boston yeah. were you trying to get as far away as possible <laughs> so, see you know you know the story I looked at the map you know we had a map in those days and you like look at the damn map and you're like how far away can I go and you're like <laughs> Boston <laughs> It is, it is actually the farthest place you can go from Oregon. That's I, why I went there. Yeah. And I get the feeling though, too, coming home was a bit, was it a bit of a struggle? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, culture shock, first of all, right? Yeah. So you're living in Boston, right? You're in that whole kind of deal, um, which by the way, I loved um, just being like the speed and the hype and the, a little bit of the competitiveness. I mean, that was my zone. And then coming back and like, you know, I remember going to the grocery store and somebody like, so it looks like you're going to make some pasta tonight. And I was like, don't be analyzing my food. What are you talking to me? You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like don't be friendly. I, Stop like, it. What are you doing? Are you, are you trying to like talk to me? So I remember that that culture shift, but then also, yeah, just I mean, the whole deal about being back with your family. Yeah, and that's we we need a whole other podcast for like the family business and what that's all about because because that was that was that was that was a whole thing too is transitioning back in and how do you work with your folks? Um, my brother was working at that time, um, which you know it was it was actually fine. I think only because 
my folks are, are again, so exceptional. You know, they're very generous people. My father was a teacher after he was a mechanical engineer, he taught uh, school. And so I think as a teacher, you sort of have that in your, in your blood too, that you are, it's not about you. It shouldn't be about you. Mm. At least that's the way he was. He was not about, he didn't have the ego. Um, it was all, all about sharing. And, you know, again, with me and mom, um, I was always kind of behind, I was always with her as a little girl, you know, cause of the journalism thing. She was, she was the writer. She was the one who was sending out the press releases in the early days. She was the one submitting the wine samples. She was organizing the events. And here I was the daughter just kind of like tootling around with mom. And so, um, you know, for, for me to come back, it was, again, the transition was quite natural because we had, you know, we have a lot of respect for the same kind of work. Sure. So, but I'm sure it was tough again, because it's, I feel like, you know, I, maybe you should answer this on some level where you like, you know, I'm off in Boston, I'm doing my thing. I'm, I'm being successful. Did it feel like a step back? Oh, for sure. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. No, I knew, I knew that I was giving up a lot when I came back. Right. Like I it was, it was a very conscious decision that, wow, you're on a track because actually what happened is I was offered a promotion to make a, a lot of money, um, but it meant moving to Atlanta, Georgia. And I think it was at that moment when I was like, okay, are you going to stay on this track, you know, and be an advertising executive um, and make a ton of money, which, you know, that's awesome, but it wasn't doing anything for me in my brain, you know, challenging mm -hmm. me, my skills. And so I think it was a pivotal moment when I was like, well, if I'm not going to take the promotion and like triple my salary, then what am I doing? And then that was the call to my dad because my dad and I were pretty close too. And I called him like, well, pop, what's going on? He's like, well, we could really use you. You know, I was like, well, yeah. shit, what does that look like? Um, but yeah, I was very aware I was going to step back. I didn't know what I was going back to. I didn't want to go back to, you know, that kind of small business thing, mm -hmm. like just playing. I don't know. It wasn't playing. We were working our, our ass off, but, but it was small. And I knew that that wasn't going to be enough for me. Right. And so when I came back and realized I could kind of, you know, yeah, pave my own way um, and, and, and build something, then it became more interesting. I love this because I wrote down the word impact because I feel like a lot of times there's a level of, for me, that I've, because I haven't moved out of this TV market and I'm not in news anymore, but, you know, I, I hear a lot, oh, you could have gone anywhere. You could have gone to this big city, this big city. And it's like, well, did I sell myself short by staying in one place? And I remember someone saying to me, you can make a bigger impact here um, if you, unless, you know, otherwise, if you move to, you know, somewhere like LA or whatever, you couldn't make as big of an impact there. And I feel the same for you moving back and then doing what you did with Ponzi, which was, you know, ginormous, your impact, huge impact. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, um, I think as young people, we're, we're always struggling with that. Yeah. Really? Because right. Especially now you've got huge school debt. You've got all these demands you want, you know, whatever you want the home, you want all this stuff, which requires money. And so you kind of work, start going into the, you know, the corporate zone or wherever the, the big dollar is. And I think sometimes in doing so, you might miss an opportunity like you're saying, where you can really 
feeds your soul and really bring out these amazing things that you don't even know are in there. Right. You know, like you said, the selling yourself short. And, um, but it takes a lot of courage to do that. I mean, you know, I'm not like patting myself on the back in any way, but I just think when people, when young people, especially make that decision to try a different path, because they think they might get, you know, it's going to be harder, but they might have more, um, uh, uh, it'll be more interesting for them and they'll be more challenged, but they may have, they may have greater impact if they go that route. I really give them so much credit. I really do. And, and, um, and it's hard to do that. I think that I, you know, as I think back, I was very fortunate because I got into sales. I was selling ad space. It was financial. I mean, it was, it was a great job. Uh, easy for me to do, uh, natural, I should say for me to do. And I was able to, you know, financially become pretty independent quickly. And I think that's, that was a sweet little situation because I knew, I knew that I had, 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 had had my bucket with me when I came back. So if it wasn't going to work, you know what I mean? Then I jump out again, but I think it does take courage to, to try a different pack. And like you said, to, to see if you can have greater impact, but what a reward I think if you can, if you get there. Absolutely. And I am going to pat you on the back because I think it does take a lot of guts to, um, to come back and, and do something that maybe, maybe somewhere back here, you were like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right step for me, but I think you were looking, you saw the environment when you came back, you saw the wine industry. And I think you were kind of looking into the future. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you were like, ah, there's something here. Totally. Yeah. I still, I still feel that. Yeah. Like this crazy part. We're 50 plus, almost 60 years old as an industry. And there's still so much potential. So much. I'm not, I'm not deeply invested in more, as I said, but I still feel there's so much potential. And I think I felt that when I came back, I was like, Oh my God, like, like there's so much to be done. And I, to be perfectly honest, I do feel that I was a bit of a black sheep in that I was pretty, um, hmm, I had to put this enterprising, <laughs> a little bit, uh, assertive, aggressive, whatever. Um, like talked about things like ROI, like, why are we doing this unless we're going to make money? Like, like things yeah. that were a little bit disruptive to that original community. Sure. You know, I was ready to sell, man. Cause yeah. guess what? I, I like, I like to go on vacation. I like to have a car. Like I'm not afraid of money. I like money. And so I felt like, why aren't we doing more? I remember if I can share one quick story, Please. this was this was a great one. Uh, we had, I don't know, a wine dinner at some point. And, and on the back of the menu, right, I list the wines with the wine prices. Well, my mom comes to the dinner and she pulls me aside and she goes, Maria, you have pricing on this. You have like a wine order form on the back of the menu. And I go, yeah, mom, we're selling wine tonight. She goes, well, I just feel it's a little aggressive. You know, they're here to have a nice, you know, here's Nancy Ponzi. Every, she wants everyone to have a great time, enjoy the food, be, you know, we're gathering, it's joyful, conversation, laughter. And I'm like, no, mom, but we need to sell wine, right? And I remember her just feeling like, oh my God, how's this going to go down? You know, how's this going to go down? And then, you know, well, okay, of course we sold wine because of course people want to buy the wine. Yeah. Basic, people want to buy wine, that's whether they're enjoying stuff like so wine. Um, and now, of course, it's just common. Of course, everybody does that. But mm-hmm. I remember the first time of doing that, it was like, oh, God, Maria, here you go. The other one I did, and I guess there are many, um, but one, 
was the tip jar. Like this is back in the, like in the old taste room. So this is in the mid nineties. And I was kind of like, I was looking at Starbucks. I'm like, what's up with Starbucks, man? They're getting all these tips, right? Their job is to make the coffee. That's their job, cappuccino, that's their job, right? Why are we tipping them? We're off the counter, we're grabbing the paper cup, we're leaving. And I said, my taste room people have to know, right? They have to know about the region, they have to know about the varietal, they need to know the Ponzi story, they need to know la la la, all these stuff, where to go after, where do they go for lunch, all these, they're concierge. I'm like, they deserve a tip. Mm-hmm. So I put the tip jar up there and again, I was like, ooh, Maria, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? Take it easy. Take it easy. But these are the things that I was like, come on, let's go. Like, let's go. Yeah. And um, and so I, you know, when I again, when I look back, I go, yeah, I think you did contribute a little bit there in terms of moving the industry forward in terms of like thinking of it really as a business as opposed to just this charming lifestyle, you know, and and I think that's why I still have that in my in my being is that come on Oregon, let's not all settle to just have, sorry to say this, I may offend a lot of people, but the I love small wineries. I love small wineries, but I do want to see us to continue to grow and be great and stay up where, where we got ourselves. Cause it was a hell of a lot of work to get there, to have that world, that kind of global recognition has been difficult. And I don't want us to just kind of settle back down and go, we're good. Nope. You know, same good down here. Yeah. Yeah. So I still have that kind of in, in my, in my uh, soul that I want Oregon to keep going, you know, rise, let's go. You assertive what? (laughs) Um, I also think it's something that you said earlier. It's this, if, if this winery is successful, then this one's going to be successful. And we're all just like, we're kind of doing this, right. We're pushing forward. So you can you can stay small, but just make make little strides to in distribution yeah. or quality, all of that all of that stuff, right? You can still have such impact. It doesn't right. mean you have to be a major brand or hundreds of thousands of cases. That's not that's not it at all. But be more than just your brand. What more can you do? I mentioned this at the four ounce pour and at the conference. Like, think about what more you can do beyond yourself. Because that's when you really create impact and change. And that's the good stuff. That's when things really start to happen. Mm-hmm. And you feel really great about it. You're like, look at the impact. Look at the change that I'm having. As opposed to, oh, look at my, I'm, I made some money this this month. I can go on vacation. That's great. But what more can you do? And you can do it in so many ways. You know, I could, I could throw out some names right now of small wineries that are having incredible impact. And I really applaud them. And I know that it's not, it's not easy right? It's doing double the work. It's kind of like, again, if you think back to what, you know, what I did, you know, it's doing double, it's, it's sitting on, you know, these boards, it's pushing other organizations forward and other um, uh, great things forward to make change for more people. And I think we all can do that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you came back in 91, right? Mm -hmm. You came back to, um, work for the the family business but then in 2012 it was you and your sister right that you guys well well my brother was still uh around but the ownership shifted at that point and then when my brother um moved on much later i think it was 28 um i forget when he left 2018 something like that um no 2000 i'm sorry my decades around 20 2008 yeah yeah it happens to me all the time (laughs) Yeah. So you, but you and your sister, um, I guess what led to this decision of 
you know, again, talking about impact and pushing forward, you're helping out, you're selling wine, you're doing all of these things, you're making changes. I mean, and then you like dive in. Yeah. Well, it was, it was at a point, uh, when I think it was, uh, yeah, right at 2000, something like in there. Um, when it was like brother and sister and I get together and we were like, so guys, what are we going to do about this winery? Cause it's, it's not big enough. Like all three of us are working here. We got the folks are, you know, everyone's expecting a paycheck. So what are we going to do? We got to grow. We got to grow or somebody's got to leave <laughs> and nobody wanted to leave. So, so that was the big moment of like, okay, we're going to do this for real. We got to get out of the garage, you know, all that stuff. And that's when we built the property, we built the winery. And then a few years later, we built this beautiful design, built this beautiful um, tasting room facility and offices. And, and yeah, we went for it at that point. Um, and, and uh, that was just an incredible, incredible moment. Um and journey for all of us because we were really living out the dream, like the whole Ponzi family dream of like gravity flow facility. You know, uh, I I had this incredible opportunity to design this beautiful tasting room with my husband, who's an incredibly talented uh, designer and builder. And um, so we all kind of got our thing, right? Louisa got our amazing winery. Um, I got my amazing hospitality space and we were just living it out. And um, and it was, it was such a, it was a blast. It was a blast. And it was so fun to, um, have people, you know, come and visit and be able to really tell that story of, you know, the humble beginnings, Hey, this started in a garage, you know, but this is what we've been able to do. And, um, and, and the reason for doing it in the way that we did was not to be ostentatious, um, and when we first did it, people were like, oh, you guys are so corporate. And, and that was like, yeah, that's all wrong. That's not what it's about. It's about, again, enhancing the region. It was about putting a crown on the top of what all the work that had been done, not just by Ponzi again, but by all of the originals mm-hmm. and saying, we are a world-class, like we are a world-class facility. Anybody from anywhere in the world can come here and feel like, wow, I better pay attention. You know, this yeah. is it. Well, and I think building that tasting room, you know, I know a lot of other things happen, but it, when you build a tasting room, especially when it's incredibly beautiful, it really is the face, right, of of your brand. And so do you think building this tasting room um, along with everything else, like that really did push everything forward? And not just for you guys, for other wineries too, right? Well, I think, it, I think that we, I would have to say, it's one of the many things that we did. I have to say that because I think that we were pushing all along, you know, I could go back and even talk about packaging and talk about why I developed the package the way that I did, because I wanted to really embrace and hone in on sophistication and elegance. And I wanted to, to, um, I wanted to be able to compete with some of the best wines in the world on the shelf. And so how was I going to do that? So I started looking at like Domenico Romani Conti and um, a lot of the Italian brands and all those kinds of things. Those were my, I wasn't looking at California and I wasn't looking at Australia and I wasn't looking at New Zealand. I was looking at the iconic brands of Europe to say, what do we need to look like so that people's perception 
of this brand is at a high level. So there was packaging decisions that were made along the way. Um, you know, it can go back to even stemware. You know, the first time we brought in R Real Crystal, that was the first, you know, Ponzi was one of the first to have Real Crystal. And it was like, it was like, what are you doing? That's incredibly insane, right? I mean, these crazy drunks are going to be drinking out of this shit. You know, they don't know. But, you know, the, so those were the things. And then I think like there were many things. We opened up a restaurant in Dundee that right. was all about, it was the first like farm to table concept. So again, kind of, there were so many things along the way in terms of trying to really elevate, elevate, elevate and enhance um, the, the region and the place. And I think uh, perhaps the taste room was like that, that crowning jewel of like, yeah, this is it. And um, it set, it definitely, I feel like it did set a standard though. I'm kind of proud of that because um, when it first, you know, when we first opened up, that was 28. Oh, I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'm not going to even say, I have to check my book now. God, <laughs> but, yeah, check my timeline. Right. Yeah. But, but the point is there were no sit down experiences. I mean, that was, it was, it was really the first Allison Blosser was doing it the same time that we were doing it. We were on the other side of the hill. And I call him like, Allison, what the hell are you guys doing? She goes, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and we were both thinking the same way. These were brand older brands that were like, okay, we're ready to, to take the next step. So it's kind of cool that way. But, um, but, be, but being able to have that tasting room for people to, to just, yeah, for, for, the, for the first time to sit down and get the story and get the view and and get that whole that whole vibe that that the full sensorial experience of visual taste you know sound the right. whole deal and and that was always my dream you know that was my dream is to create that experience for people and we were able to achieve it and and it's been su super fun to see other people you know kind of uh do very similar tasting rooms now absolutely it's absolutely and you could even say i mean here in southern oregon um very similar things happen. I think you see that across the state, right? Where you start in this cave, there's like a tasting room yeah. cave or a garage, and then you build this facility. And then someone down the street builds a huge, beautiful state of the art facility. And then someone else is like, yeah, we got to do that too. So you do see it. It steps. Yeah. And I don't even know, and I would just do this word of caution. I don't know if it's for everyone because I, at this point, I would say my observation is that there's a lot of people feeling that they must do that, that they must have this sit down experience. And I want to just say, you don't, it's just like being a small brand. You can still have impact as a small brand. You can still have an incredible visitor experience and not have to have a state of the art, you know, luxurious patios and terraces and la la la. You don't need to. It's all about what your brand is identifying with and what your brand is capable of doing financially too you know like too many people are jumping out of what they're they're what they can manage and um and i i again i get a little fearful because it's like you all don't have to mm -hmm. have a sit down you all don't have to have a fireplace you don't have to have bocce courts you don't have to have all the amenities just make one thing really really awesome and maybe it's a big old oak tree you know, and that's why people want to come there because of whatever you've done to your oak tree or whatever, you know, like, yeah. Um, so there's a million ways to, to run your brand. And as you said, I think that yes, the taste room is the face of your brand, but it's also more than the tasting room. I also think that your packaging is so critical because your bottle, I mean, I remember this, 
your bottle is going into the Ritz-Carlton and the Four Seasons. And dude, you may not be able to go there, but your bottle of wine's going there. You better look good. <laughs> what did you change specifically with the packaging? Oh, you know, I think I just wanted to sharpen it up. I came into, um, interestingly, kind of full circle now where people are kind of getting back to the vintage look. When I came back in the 90s, I thought it was a little too crunchy um, and I wanted to be sleek. I was looking at like, I was looking at brands that like, you know, Rolex and Prada and and Gucci, like, you know, that's where I, that's where my mind was. I'm like, I want to hit a demo that, that, that doesn't even know that they want to be hit. You know, I was really pushing mm -hmm. far beyond. Um, so cleaning it up, simplifying it, you know, um, all those kinds of things. But I think that, that everything that you do. I, I keep saying a lot of these things, but everything really matters along the way because mm -hmm. your brand is not built one moment. It's it, it evolves. And so you have to continue to think about every step of the way. How does that whatever decision you make, how does that feel against your brand? Does that still make sense with your brand? Like if it does, then cool, then go. But if you're feeling like paella isn't your thing with your brand, then you shouldn't have paella come to your event. Mm -hmm. It, are oysters part of your brand? Okay, then have oysters. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. all those little things matter. Your voice, your tone of of your your copy and what you say and how you say it. Are you saying it in in um, our voice or is it the voice? You know, the narration. I mean, all those little subtle things make a difference and truly, I think, build a brand. And when you're not really paying attention to all those things, that's if you have a misstep and you and and you you get off, your your brand's going to get off too. Mm -hmm. So it's very. I mean, I was there. Talk to my people who worked with me, man. I drove them crazy because I'm like, stay in the lane. <laughs> there has to be a why, right? I always say this: there has to be a why for every little thing you do. I would tell this to my reporters all the time. You know that first um, lead-in sentence to your story that has to be your why. Why are we doing this today? Why are you making this decision with your brand? Why did you bring in Riedel Crystal? Why did you change the packaging? There always has to be a why. And then I always get back to also, because I'm a storyteller, it's the story too. Like that's, that typically is what pushes brands forward is the story. That's what brings people in. Period. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm all about. That's what Bill, I would like to say that I built our brand. I mean, the wine was pretty damn good. Right. You know, this is friggin' a master. Okay. We Amazing. know that. She, okay. Whatever. You got to have the great product. Okay. But through my storytelling, because I'm a journalism major, right? Mm -hmm. I'm all about telling stories too. And I love telling the story of Oregon wine, but telling the, our story, but Oregon's story is what built the brand too. And, and it's an incredible story. It's an incredible story. And I every day I felt so lucky that I had a story because there were so many other brands out there that didn't have a story. And maybe they do have a story, but they hadn't figured it out yet. Mm -hmm. They hadn't really gotten down to the essence of what is so special about their brand. And that's what people want to know. You know, that that's what people want to know. When I would do, you know, wine dinners or whatever it was, People would always, you know, we'd, we'd have the wines, we'd have the food. It was, of course, an amazing experience. But at the end, you know, you're going tableside and chatting with people. It was more like, so tell me about your, you know, what was it like? Bingo. Moving up? You know, tell me about the first time you bottled your wine. 
tell, they want the story and they want personal connection mm-hmm. because we are people. We are people. We're humans and humans really do like humans, most of us. And so we want to learn about each other. And so these are the things like it's basic stuff, but it's what moves a brand forward to are the stories. Yeah. And that's, to be honest, Trish, it's one of the reasons that I, I felt that I needed to, I, it was time for me to leave Ponzi because I was finding in our size, like where we had gone with production and the level that we were at, I was telling less of my story and I was talking more about spreadsheets. And all of a sudden it was like, not all of a sudden, but over the course of a few years, it was like, this isn't me anymore. Like this is, this isn't, I want to tell my story because I've got a kick-ass story and it goes with this beautiful wine. But if you want to talk about skews and moving boxes, that's just not for me. So again, be in check with that, like, where's your brand going and where do you want it to go and what happens when it gets to whatever size and stuff like that. But anyway, there's a whole story with all that. No, I love know? it. Um, and we, I want to talk about that story, but first I do want to let people know that you and I are for hire. We're going to so- solve all of your life's problems when it comes to <laughs> brand. We just get in touch with our people and <laughs> the Maria and Trish show is going to hit the road. Um, but speaking of your story, 2020, you released your book, Pinot Girl. Um, And this is an intimate memoir about you growing up amongst the vines, about this family, about this pioneering family. Um, The word, I think I may have read it somewhere, but just scrappy comes to mind. I just think scrappy. Oh, so scrappy. So scrappy, Um, right? Totally. Oh my gosh, yes. I mean, there's nothing about, I, I wrote the book because I wanted people to also, I wanted them to understand a little bit about the Oregon wine story, the beginnings, you know, at that point. But also I wanted people to have this kind of insider view of really what it's all about in terms of, you know, it's when you're farming, it's it's dusty, it's dirty, it's there, or then it's muddy, or then it's always cold, or it's too hot, or it's, you know, yeah. I mean, it's not at all comfortable. Um, you know, and then you're in the winery and then it's like wet and sticky and cold and dark, you know, and it's like, oh, now you're on the bottling line warehouse. Oh, okay. Now you're tired. You know, I mean, it's like, there's really very few parts of this that are really enjoyable unless you get out like me and you get to go tell a story because <laughs> that's the part I love. Um, but I wanted to tell that story and just also, um, yeah, the scrappy part of, putting this, this whole industry together. I mean, those great stories about sharing, um, you know, sharing equipment and my dad fixing, you know, the distemmer for Myron, you know, down in Amity because we, ha- we were moving the distemmer around because we only had so many distemmers or, you know, the press that broke and my dad having to get to welding that back together or the tractor that never, I mean, the Blossers tell this great story too, about how their tractor always, you know, always went to the right side. It would never go to the left. And so they had to strategically think about how to, how to work in the vineyard, you know, and like, and like we had a tractor with no headlights and my dad would be out there like in the middle of, you know, in the dark and I'm like, Pop, what are you doing? You can't see. Well, that was our tractor. Everything was used. Mm -hmm. The equipment had been used, borrowed, and then shared. And um, talk about scrappy, man. It was was scrappy. It's like, hey, do you have any... I mean, I remember the glue pellets. Um, Glue pellets were used to stick the labels on. 
we would melt the glue pellets and then we'd run the machine through the, the hot glue, which would burn your fingers. It was a whole thing. Um, but we would always run out of glue pellets. So it was like on the phone, you know, the family phone with a long line. And you'd be like, hey, Marge, you got any more glue pellets? <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to call, you know, Bill and Fuller over there and see if he's got any extra or like whatever you ran out of foils. There was always somebody that you would call. Yeah. We were a big and we were, yeah, we were scrapping it together. Collaboration, then, collaboration with a capital C. I love that so much. Um, I do want to talk about the four ounce pour because I got to hear this at the Women in Wine conference. Uh, yeah. Where did this idea of the four ounce pour come from? Because yeah. you're full well, of ideas, woman. You just. Oh, that's the problem. I got hummingbird issues. I love it. Um, <laughs> Well, the Florence Pour really came, you know, you, I think most people who have been in a career for a very long time, you know, for me, it was almost 35 years. And then all of a sudden, one day it's over, it's kind of, it's kind of crashes your, your world. And, and you pick yourself up and you go, okay, so what have I learned? Like, what have I learned from all that from 35 years? What have I got? What have I got from it? And I really started processing that, um, the wine industry has taught me so much about so many things, but I think in the end, what it's really at the end of it, it's about what this product is, what this beverage is. And it's this beautiful beverage. It's made from the earth. It's carefully um, produced. If it's done well, um, it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of care. It takes a lot of thoughtfulness. And one thing that has always bothered me throughout my entire life is when people abuse it when they take advantage of it, when they don't truly enjoy it the way that I have been brought up to enjoy it. Because for me, it's inherent. For me, it's part of my DNA that when I drink wine, I'm very thoughtful about it. I really think about the flavors. I think about the structure. I mean, I can't help but do that. And I'm not saying that everybody has that experience or can understand that. But what I'm hoping to do with the four ounce pour is for people to understand that wine lends itself to a lifestyle that can create just a little bit more intentionality, you know, just a little bit more of this idea about slowing down, thinking things through. Um, and it can happen with a little glass of wine, just the way it can happen with a small bowl of pasta, you know, or just going out for a long, you know, a, a mile walk, but not like a 10 mile run where you can just have moments to, to take things in, to slow down. And I think the four ounce pour for me represents that because it's the perfect amount of wine to enjoy with a meal. Now, many people have asked me, well, Maria, four ounces is not that much. And I'm like, no, dude, I get it. It's not that much. There's, that's the whole point. And I'm not saying that I don't think you can go back and have a second four ounce because I do. I definitely think you can have a second four ounce pour. And if it's a long dinner, you should have a third ounce pour. A, a third four ounce pour. But the point is that with every glass of wine, you should really be thoughtful about it and think about it because somebody has spent a lot of time making that. I think about my farm, you know, my vineyard uh, team that spends every day over the course of the full year to go out and make sure that that vine is perfectly structured, that, you know, every cluster is in alignment, that the hedge is perfect that the leaves are pulled, you know, that, 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 that fruit is going to ripen right on time. And they're incredible at what they do. And they do that every day right. for 20 years. They've been doing that. Okay. That's hard work. And then I think about the folks in the cellar, 
you know, the same thing, cleaning out presses, you know, and, and being slowly uh, draining, you know, into barrel and thinking about what barrels are we going to use? I mean, there's so much thoughtfulness. And so for me, I wanted to somehow articulate that to, to the masses and to people who may not understand wine the way that I do. And I think that it can be applied to, to life in general. And so that's your very long answer to your question. It was, you know what, it was so, um, I don't want to be dramatic and say like life-changing, but it was kind of life-changing for me when I heard this at the women in wine conference, because every single time we open a bottle now and we always do a little brief taste, my husband and I, we, we sniff it and we don't look at each other. So we can't influence each other on how, how good it is, or maybe not how good it is. Um, but now every single time he does pour like maybe like three, four ounces because we don't like big old fat glasses of wine. Cause I like to swirl. I think you're in my head. You are in my head now. There you go. Seriously though. I mean, it really did change the way, uh, because you're right. There's so, so much work that goes into one bottle of wine and it's a snapshot. It's a place and time. And it's like, if we don't, if you truly are a lover of this industry, then you should absolutely take your time with that first glass and maybe that second glass, whatever, up to you. For sure. Well, I appreciate, thank you for saying that. I've actually, I've gotten several notes of people who say similar things and send me photographs of their, their you know, but, but I love that it's kind of in some people's heads now because that was the intention. The intention is hang on a second. Mm-hmm. Think about it. Yep. Think about it. And when you do, you enjoy it so much more. I mean, it becomes this much more impactful experience. Huge. And that yeah, and and that that's what it's all about. And I, and it's really all so it kind of came from a reflection and then it also came that reflecting back, you know, to 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 my profession, but also it also came when I heard the um you know the the stats at the wine symposium last year that were like, you know, wine sales are flatlined and and the alternative beverages are up and all these kinds of things. I'm like, what hang on, people don't understand about wine. We need to, we need to continue again. I feel like, okay, you got to educate people again. Like we got to talk to people about what this is about. How many people would come to the winery and be like, well, where are the grapes? Right. And you're like, oh, well, you know, the grapes come out in the summer. <laughs> They're not here. It's February. You know, but like people are so detached to what it is that we do. And when we're so in, involved in it, we get it. But we need to continue to share that information with other people and not make it pretentious and scary and weird. It's not. It's just a beautiful beverage. And that's it. And just enjoy it. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I, I've always like, you know, if I go out with my girlfriends and we're going to go have a drink, I always have a cocktail. You know, I want to have a cocktail because I just want to have fun. I don't want to, you know, I just want to enjoy just them. And then when it's dinner, ah, now we're going to have something amazing. Now we're going to pull up beautiful wine and really dig in. So I think that there's something really special about wine. And I want people to understand that. Well, I love that. You're my kind of woman. <laughs> Margarita first, and then we'll go to Pinot. Margarita okay. first, and then a beautiful glass of Pinot, please. Um, I do want to back up really quickly because uh, this, I feel like this kind of segued into the four ounce pour 
but Ponzi was sold, right? Ponzi Vineyards, you guys sold that. Was that a hard decision? I mean, that's probably a stupid question, but was that was that something really difficult? And obviously it took a lot of thought. Yeah, huge, huge thought. Um, yeah, definitely difficult. Um, so at that time, Louisa, my sister and I owned the winery at right. that point, and we had done, you know, the big push. Um, and there we were, and I think partly you know, it's that transition of running a small business and moving into a large business. And we were, we were those people and, you know, trying to transition, um, while still being control freaks and still wanting to make sure everything was just right. Just like it was when it was 10,000 cases, but yet you're making like six times as much, uh, was a bit of a challenge. And then, you know, the, just the, and in, and in that transition, I think, um, realizing that we were losing again, like I said earlier, you're like losing our love for why we were in the business. And that just was kind of a bummer. Um, and yet also being very, very fully aware that we had built something so special that uh, this brand was uh, really spectacular. And I didn't want to mess it up. Like I knew it was time. Cause I knew that I wasn't, I wasn't, I was engaged, but I wasn't as engaged like I needed to be to take it to the next level. And I mean, I'm kind of hyper aware of that stuff because, because you work so hard for something, you don't want to blow it. And, and I was like, you know, I think we need to start thinking this out. And so the conversation with Louisa and then of course, conversations with Dick and Nancy, and then the third gen was all part of it of like, Hey, we're thinking about maybe we should just see if there's anyone sniffing around and the response was, well, of course you should see what's going on. I mean, right? You're being a naive business owner to not sniff around. So when we did, and there were some pretty nice names on the list of people who were interested in, in um, you know, securing something in the Valley. Um, and then the conversation with the Bollinger family started and it went for over a year. It was a very, very, very long negotiation um, during 2020, which made it even more dramatic and mm -hmm. interesting. Um, but, but, you know, it was definitely a, a difficult decision. Um, there's no doubt about it, but I also think that it was a good decision. I still feel that way. Um, I, I mean, my only hope is I hope that the Bollingers, you know, love this brand as much as I did, you know, and I don't know, we'll see. Um, but that's one thing that you have to say goodbye to, right? When you, when you, when you sell something, you have to, it's like selling a house. You're like, I love that house, but I'm. I'm moving on. Totally. So, so yeah, difficult decision in a way, but also I think in some ways a healthy decision too, as, as tough as that might be able to say. Um, but it was, it was, it was interesting. The response mainly from family friends who were like, wait, you can't sell our winery. And you're like, oh, but it's not yours. It's not yours. <laughs> it's not yours. Well, there's yeah. so much there's so much there, right? They're saying goodbye. There's transition. There's this idea of like, well, now what am I going to do? You know? And I think, and correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, I love that the four ounce pour came out of all of those things. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, I didn't really, I, I was so focused on the transaction. Uh, I was also very focused on my employees, my staff, my team, um, sure. my everybody around the buyers, um, my wholesalers, my importers, these are 
really relationships I've had for a long time. So I was more like focused on, and the family, of course, of like, how is this going to feel for all of them? That I said this uh, uh, to somebody earlier, I was like, it's the classic, like, I forgot to put my mask on. Like, it was like, everyone else is okay. Oh, shit, what are you going to do? Right. And like, woo, tailspin, man. You wake up the next morning, you're like, oh, whoa. oh, shit. <laughs> Oh, it really happened. Like it really happened. Like there's no emails. Like, whoa, you know, stuff like that. And so it took me, yeah, it's, and I'm still in probably that. I'm still in that, that zone of like trying to figure it all out. I think it's a, I think it's a process, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't, it wasn't one of these things where like retirement or, okay, in 20,000, blah, 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 we are going to sell. When we hit X amount of dollars, we are going to sell the business. Be ready for that. And then you will go play golf. It was like, oh, wow, this is actually happening. Are we okay with that? Is everyone okay with that? How's my dad? How's my mom? How are the kids? You know, blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, oh, how are you? What are you? So what are you doing? Right. I don't know. Being a hummingbird. But <laughs> I'm buzzing around. I love but it. I'm, but it's been really, I think it's been healthy in, in for, for me personally, too. You know, like the four ounce bar, I'm really proud of the four ounce bar. I think like that was something I would have never probably had time to even consider, you know, holding that. Exactly. It came out of this because you were kind of in transition and it's like, well, what next, what next? And then this happened. And I agree. I don't think it would have happened if you were still doing things with Ponzi that you were doing. Yeah, no. Cause you're just, your head's so in it. Yeah. The business. 1000%. It's like you have a child and then all of a sudden your kids leave and you're like, oh my God, what do I do myself? You're so vested. You're so vested. But you just, you know, you move on. It's all about evolving, I think. It's all about what's next. What's next? Um, I do want to wrap up just a little bit, get to the final three questions. Um, For those who want to read Pinot Girl, I mean, it's on Amazon. You can really find it anywhere. Yeah, but I I encourage you not to purchase it from Amazon. Okay. I I encourage you to find it or ask for it at your local bookstore um, because I love to support small business. Mm -hmm. I'm all about supporting my local businesses, especially bookstores. Um, Or you can go and purchase from me directly on my website. Oh, do that. Amponzi.com. But but it is available. You can get it anywhere. So, yeah. Love that. All right. Uh, Let's get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given. Yeah. That's a tough one because um, <clears throat> I have two, but share them. I share them both. They're both. Okay. Well, any time that I, as a professional, as the, as the owner of, of the winery, um, anytime I had to, when I came upon a, a challenge, like a big decision that, that was going to be impacting, I would be really anxious about it. I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, cause you're bringing your, when it's family business too, you bring your whole family in on your decisions. It's really intense. And yet you feel earnest about it. Like, yes, we must do this. I, I, I remember the words of courage changes everything. And those are simple words. Courage changes everything. But courage, when you have the courage to move outside your comfort zone, something amazing is going to happen. You know, it will change everything. And more than likely, it will get better. Mm. More than likely, it will get better. So I believe in courage changing everything because it really does. And I, I, uh, 
I, I, I've been able to, you know, I have, a, I have a daughter um, who's like 26 now and, you know, she's working at this really job. They were tough on her. And I said, you got to quit, just quit. Cause they're going to kill you. They're going to kill your ethic, everything that you've got. You're so, you're confident. You just got it. I don't know. I can just do it. Takes courage. Got to do it, but you'll do it. You'll find your feet somewhere else. And, and, and that's the things that you need to remember. So courage changes everything. And then the other one I think that is important is one that my drama school teacher taught me when I was in middle school, all of 14 years old, a very simple lesson. And she said, always remember you are responsible for you. Ooh. You are responsible for you. And, you know, simple. Of course, I'm responsible for me. But actually think about it. That means you can't blame anybody else for anything else but yourself right? You're not the victim. You can do stuff. You have the ability to do. We live in America. You have the ability to do whatever it is that you want to do. And it's always going to come back on you. Whatever choices you make are your choices. Don't blame it on your husband, the kids, the dog. I can't get out the dog. No, make the decision. You're responsible for you. So those are my two um, best advices. That those are good. Those are good. <laughs> Yeah, I'm taking those away for sure. Uh, what's yeah. your happy place? Oh, gosh. Well, um, probably, I hate to even say this because my husband will probably listen to this, but he loves to sail. I hate water, but we go sailing on a regular basis to beautiful places around the world that where the water is calm and he sails, but he sails not on a mono, you know, a monohull, which goes like this because yeah. I, I don't like that, but on a catamaran. And we have had some amazing trips on water, on a boat, both of which I don't really like necessarily. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that's kind of my happy place. Put me Perfect. in the Bahamas catamaran with, um, you know, like a gin and tonic or a beautiful bottle of something cold, like a, I don't know, I wouldn't, maybe one of Louise's Chardonnays. But anyway, yeah, Bahamas on a boat. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, my stepdad had a sailboat. And I remember going out and I loved it. I love sailing so much until the one day the winds picked up and the boat heels where I literally thought I was going to fall out of the sailboat. I'm like, I'm done. And that's why you insist on a catamaran because they're level. You can dance <laughs> on See, I, now I, will also, I only will get on a boat if it is level and you can dance. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. That actually... Not your best advice. That's what I'm taking away from this interview. <laughs> Only get on a boat you can dance on. Um, okay. Oh, okay. In all things food and drink, what do you crave? Yeah. Um, well, usually I crave crunchy Cheetos, but we shouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> I think you was saying crunchy Cheetos and a beer. Um, probably a, like a lager too, by the way. But no. But, I, but if it's not that kind of a night... Um, the other night that I love is like a crispy truffle fries with like a bottle of chilled salon champagne. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Always. That does, that's all I need. I love a good French fry with truffle fries, even better. And then a salon champagne chilled. I yeah. thought we were soul sisters before. We are definitely soul sisters now. <laughs> Sold. I am there in. You go. Um, you have been such a delight. Thank you so much for, uh, sharing your heart with me, sharing your story. I do feel like you, there's so much history 
wrapped up into you. And I'm so thankful that you wrote this book, Pinot Girl, and shared so much of um, you and your family because it is a huge chapter in the Oregon wine industry. Yeah. Well, thanks, Trish. And I was just... I, I always say this all the time. I'm so honored to have been a part of it. And I was just a little kid running around, but fortunately observant enough. Mm-hmm. And I was able to put it together into some, some words. And so I really hope that other people can enjoy the, the story, but thank you so much for having me. It was, it was a blast as I knew it would be. And well, I'm uh, so thankful that you, um, observed and remembered and and put it into a book. I'm so thankful because it's important. These are important stories that we still have to tell. We still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's write a book together. Okay, done. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.